0: Scripture reading is from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 through 6. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 through 6, this is the word of the Lord. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace there is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Amen.
1: Good morning Just want to make sure this mic is working. Uh, we have Well we have more than one newcomer, but we've only got one name here, so if you're a newcomer and you do not feel welcome, uh, it's because I don't have your name, so don't blame me. okay uh, But um, if we could welcome David and Nancy's cousin Joseph, I think he's sitting over there in the back in the Highlighting mint green shirt over there, if we could just have a round of applause. (laughs) But good morning, hopefully it's a good morning for you. Uh, We find ourselves today in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Uh, This is part one of a multi-part series about how godliness grows in a Christian as they participate and live in the context of the local church. I want to begin my sermon in total honesty and confession, and I want to confess to you that at the beginning of the week, my goal was to get through chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. Um, I knew it was going to be ambitious because, like, verses 1 through 16 has a lot of sections, and they're all really dense, and they're all really important. But I, I just thought, like, maybe if I just kind of worked at it enough, like, maybe I could figure out how to sort of like tool these things together and we'd have to skip a lot of stuff, but maybe we wouldn't have to skip the most important stuff. So, you know, I started preparing the sermon. And the, and the more and more I prepared, the more I felt like the Lord was gently encouraging me to abandon this plan of mine and instead to break up verses 1 through 16 into smaller sections. Did I listen? No, I did not listen. And so instead, all week, I just kept working at it and kept working at it and kept working. As I worked at it, I realized something really important, that this sermon is way too long and nobody wants to hear a three-hour sermon, and I definitely don't want to preach a three-hour sermon. So, uh, you know, we called an audible, and that's how we end up here in verses 1 through 6, Okay. And this whole story that I'm telling you here in the beginning is a story about how you may make plans, but ultimately God orders your steps. So that's a little bonus appetizer sermon for you. At the beginning of the sermon, you can take that one home for free, okay? People have pointed out that my humor is very awkward. I am okay with that. So last week, we finished out Ephesians chapter 3. Um, as we finished out Ephesians chapter 3, we talked about how uh, Ephesians 3 serves as this, this pivotal moment, this pivotal shift in the entire book of Ephesians. The first three chapters of the book of Ephesians, Paul begins to build the theological foundation upon which everything else is built because in chapters 4 through 6, he begins to give a code of conduct. He begins to describe what the Christian life and what a Christian ethic is supposed to look like. He closes Ephesians chapter 3, which is what we did last week, by reminding the believers in Ephesus and exhorting them and telling them that he is praying for them so that they might be more deeply rooted and anchored in the knowledge of Christ's love for them. And the reason why he does this is because the Apostle Paul knows and he understands that any attempts at Christian living, any attempts at obedience to Christian ethics that does not begin and flow out of and is not centered on the knowledge of Christ's love for the Christian ultimately ends in sin or foolishness. And this is something that's really common in his writing. This is a pattern that we see all throughout the Apostle Paul's writing. He does this thing where he anchors praxis, what you do and what you're supposed to do, in principle into why you do them, the principle behind why you do them. And Ephesians chapter 4 is no exception to this pattern. He begins our passage today by saying, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called the first question we have to ask ourselves is, what is this calling that they've been called to that he's talking about? Well, it's everything he talks about in chapters 1 through 3. That they were dead in their trespasses, and unable to save themselves. So God came down and he saved them. That they were raised by his power, not their own. That they were being perfected, and they are being united, and they are being formed into the temple in which the immortal God will dwell not by their own wisdom or their own power, but by his mercy and by his grace. This is the calling that the Apostle Paul is urging believers to walk in a manner worthy of. What does it mean to walk in a manner worthy of this calling? We could say it another way. We could say that to walk in a manner worthy of their calling means to live in such a way, to practice their Christian faith in such a way that it would accurately reflect the calling by which they have been called. He is telling them, live your life in such a way that it illustrates, responds, and reflects the truth that God supplied the means of your salvation through the death of his son, and by his spirit you are being perfected. Practice your Christian faith in such a way that it would reveal the truth that God found you when you were lost, loved you when you were unlovable, and he is in the process of bringing you home and restoring to you the perfection that you lost in Eden. And so there we have the pattern, praxis and principle. Go live a holy Christian life. There's your praxis because you've been saved by God. There's your principle. But what does that kind of Christian living look like? And the practical, in our everyday. In our passage today, the Apostle Paul gives us a picture not only of how we should live our lives, but he also tells us what aspect of our Christian calling our lives ought to reflect. So today, let's look at this picture by first examining and understanding what part of our calling our lives are supposed to reflect. And second, let's take a look at what and how we are called to live. So we're going to look at two things. One, the Christian calling, as in what is the calling that we have as Christians? And then two, our Christian call. What are we being called to do as Christians in order to reflect our Christian calling? I know, the word call comes up a lot. So what is our Christian calling? Well, in verse 1, we're told to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. We're told that we need to live in a way that accurately reflects, reveals, and responds to the truth of what God has done and is doing for us and who we are in him. But before we get into that, I think it's important that we establish and understand what is the truth of God that we're trying to reflect. And I think it's important that we start there, which is the opposite of Paul's order. I think a majority of us, we, we tend to spend more time and give more priority thinking about what it is that we're going to do rather than what we're doing is supposed to accomplish. We spend more time thinking about what we're going to do rather than thinking about what, whether that doing is going to help us accomplish what we want to accomplish. Let me give you an example, okay? Okay. I spend more time thinking about what I'm going to eat rather than thinking about the goal behind my eating. Say I've got a wedding coming up, as in like my own wedding, right? And what that means is, uh, thank you. (laughs) And what what that means is I have to lose weight, right? Because I need to buy a suit. And I don't want to get measured in this current fat suit of mine. I want to get measured in a slightly slimmed down, skinnier version of mine, right? So the goal behind my eating is to eat in such a way that I lose weight. But here's the problem: just the other night, I ate three packs of Chapaghetti and like a half pound of sangetsar at like eleven o'clock at night. I'm not exaggerating, right? Do you see the problem, right? What I'm doing doesn't help me accomplish what it is I'm trying to accomplish. When I was younger and less sanctified. Um, Okay, it's still funny. All right. Even now, uh, one of the things that I find really funny is watching people who don't play sports try to jump really high. uh, It's, like, really common in little kids, okay? Because here's what they do. People who don't play sports often, when they try to jump really high, what they do is they back up, and then they run as fast as they can. And as they're running, right before they're supposed to jump, they're running, 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 and they stop, and then they jump. And it's so funny to me because I'm like, what are you doing? Are you crazy? You're wasting all this energy that's so counterproductive. Why bother running and spending all that energy sprinting if you're just going to stop at the last moment and kill all your momentum? You may as well start from completely stationary. You probably have better luck. What you're doing is both foolish, useless, and totally counterproductive. So before we start talking about what we're going to do as Christians, let's focus on what that doing is supposed to accomplish so that we're not being foolish, so that we're not being counterproductive, so that we're not wasting our time and energy. What is the truth of God that our faith and our Christian living is supposed to reflect and reveal? If you have your Bibles open, look with me to Ephesians 4, verses 4 through 6. If you don't have your Bibles, just listen really carefully. The Apostle Paul tells us, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So what truth of God and what truth of our faith is our Christian living supposed to reflect? That there is only one body of Christ, and that's the church. And there is only one spirit that binds that body together. And there is only one hope for those who belong to that body. And that hope is that God died to save sinners, but that death could not hold him, and he is alive, turning sinners into saints. And that those who share in this hope, they have one king, one faith, one baptism, that they are adopted by one God and one Father, and that Father is the Lord over all things, through all things, and he is in all things. We are called to live our Christian lives in such a way that it reflects and it reveals the unity we have in Christ as members of his body. And if this sounds familiar to you, it should, because this is exactly what he says in 1 Corinthians 12. He talks about how all the members of the body of Christ, though we may make up different parts, we all need each other. And we're called to celebrate one another, not because of how wonderful we are, but because how each of us contributes to the glory and the health and the strength of the body as a whole. And isn't it amazing how the head, which is Christ, can utilize the members of this body for his glory and our good. When people see us, when people see the way we worship, When people see the way we live as Christians, they ought to see the Savior who gave his life and gives his spirit so that people who were once strangers could become brothers and sisters, so that those who were at war with one another could be brought together into the bonds of peace, so that those who were different could share in the same hope and encourage one another to keep going on this long journey home. This is the Christian calling our lives ought to reflect. So then what is our Christian call? What does that kind of life and what does that kind of living start to look like? What does it look like when we are surrounded and trained by a society that trains us to look at all the things that divide and separate and differentiate us? Let me ask you what may be a hard and painful question this morning. What truths does your Christian life resemble and reflect? Does your life celebrate the truth that we all have one faith, one hope, and one Father? I think if we're honest, we might be able to point to some areas and aspects of our life that look that way, but I think the reality is that for most of us, for most of our lives, it doesn't reflect that. I think for many of us our relationships, they reflect that there is one college, one group of friends, and one life stage that you should engage with. I think for most of us, our lives would reflect that our convictions reflect that there is one party and one set of political convictions that a person ought to have. I think our actions often reflect that there is one person and one family that matters most, and that's mine. Take a look at your relationships. Reflect for a moment on who you talk to after services, who you go and eat with. I mean, take a look at the the people that you're sitting next to, especially for those of you who've been members of this church for a long time. Aren't you sitting next to the exact same people that you went to school with, that you're in the same life stage with, that you get along with? And aren't those the same group of people that after this service is over, they're the ones you're going to talk to, they're the ones you're going to eat with? And they're the ones you're gonna spend time with. And let's not sugarcoat ourselves and think that we're some kind of exception because we happen to come in late or or there wasn't enough chairs so someone happened to sit next to us that we didn't really know. Do you have any real, meaningful relationships with people with whom you have real, meaningful differences? Differences that make you uncomfortable. Differences that can be upsetting. Differences that can make things awkward. How many meaningful relationships do you have with people you didn't meet at servants ministry or you didn't meet at your college fellowship that you don't have the same friend group with? For so many of us, more often than not, there is one income bracket, one social circle, and one comfort level that we're willing to pursue. And look, I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with sitting with your friends or maintaining long friendships or relationships with people who are in the same life stage with you, there's a lot of good and a lot of wisdom in that. What I'm saying is that if that's the only kinds of relationship you have in this church or in any church, is it your faith that brings your relationships together? Is there any room for Christ in any of your relationships does the fact that he died for every believer factor at all or motivate you in any way in the relationships you choose to pursue? Two Christians don't always make a Christian relationship. And it's a hard question. I know, I get it, because I'm the same way. But if we're going to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, we've got to start changing the way we approach our relationships. The Apostle Paul in verses 2 to 3, he offers to us a positive ethic of how we ought to approach our lives. Look with me if you have your Bibles open. He says in verses 2 to 3, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, What does it mean to walk with humility and gentleness? It means to live in such a way that we are giving deep and thoughtful consideration and deference to others. Walking with humility and gentleness means giving deep and thoughtful consideration and deference to others. It means that you're called to live in such a way that you are considering the needs and the hurts and the pain and the wisdom of others. Let me say this some of us are reckless with our words, and this is especially true on social media. And by reckless, what I mean is that we give no regard for how those words might reopen old wounds for people or create new offenses for other people. Let me jump ahead a little bit to next week, because I think a lot of times when when you hear something like that, the common response to that is people like to say, well, it's just the truth. I'm just saying the truth, and it's not my fault if people can't handle the truth. But look at what Paul says in verse 15. He calls us to speak truth in love. And honestly, for some of us, we're, we put so much effort into expressing truth and so little effort and care into whether or not that truth is being expressed in love. And the net result of all of that is greater division and separation from our brothers and sisters. Listen, I'm not saying you can't post about your personal thoughts your feelings, or your political convictions. As Christians, we're called to bear a banner of truth and shine a light in dark places as we're supposed to. And honestly, for a lot of us, we probably have the exact opposite problem. We're too afraid to say anything at all. But if we are going to say something, the Word of God is challenging us and asking us, are we expressing those truths with the humility and gentleness that is worthy of, of the calling to which we've been called. I don't think it's any secret that our pastoral staff holds a variety of positions on the political spectrum. Some of us are a little more on the left, some of us are a little bit more on the right, and one of us is the most correct. I'm just kidding. I know that this, is, that this diversity of political opinion on the staff is also reflected here in our congregation. If you don't like the political takes of one of our pastors, go talk to some of the others. I'm sure you'll probably find one of the pastors who's more in line with your thinking. And you see, what the Apostle Paul is calling us to do is to walk and live our faith despite our differences in a way that celebrates and reflects the unity we have in Christ. And one way this happens is by having humility and gentleness towards one another. Let me give you an example of what that might look like. If you are dismissing everything a member or one of our pastors say because you happen to disagree with them on a political issue and you don't think that they have anything that they could teach you about life or faith, or even the very political issue that you happen to disagree on, then I think you would need to take a hard look at whether or not you have these traits of humility and gentleness that the Word of God is calling us to. We can have differences in our convictions. God is not calling us to share the exact same political positions or social opinions. He is calling us to express and share those differences in such a way that it reflects and highlights the unity that we have in Christ. That the faith and theological foundations that unite us are far greater than all the things that might divide us. To express those things and listen to those who might disagree with us in such a way that it would express, I don't know everything. The Apostle Paul also says that we are to be patient and bear with one another in love. To be patient, to bear with another person in love means to recognize that a brother or sister in the the faith may be deeply flawed. They may be deeply broken. But you're called to wait and hope for the ways that God is fixing them. You see, it's not just our external actions or our external relationships that need to change. It's the internal posture and the internal monologue that exists in our hearts that needs to fundamentally shift. Because let's be honest, there's people in this church that we don't like. There are people in the church universal that you don't like and that you try to avoid that we separate ourselves, ourselves from them because we believe or we know for a fact that they are flawed and that they are broken. Maybe they're selfish or maybe they're irresponsible. Maybe they're careless or arrogant. Maybe they're rude or inconsiderate. Maybe it's hard to put your finger on it, but there's just something about them that rubs you in just the wrong way. So you avoid them. You try not to be in the same area as them. You try not to serve in the same community groups or volunteer groups or fellowship groups as them. When people say, hey, you want to go out to eat? Your first question isn't, where are we going to eat? You say, well, who's coming? And when they share, their words may as well be white noise because you can't hear anything they're saying because you're so frustrated by their shortcomings and flaws. But Paul tells us, that the Christian life that reflects this calling we have in Christ in a worthy manner is one that is characterized by patience and bearing with one another in love. Let me ask you a question that I'm totally stealing from an older and wiser pastor who asked me this question one time. Do you pray for people as often as you complain about them? Do you pray for people as often as you grumble about them in your hearts? What does bearing with one another in love mean? What does it mean to have patience with one another? Because I'll tell you what, it doesn't mean pretending like everything is great and they're great and you're great and your friendship's great and your relationship is great. And isn't God great? It doesn't mean that you guys are gonna be best friends. Because here's the thing, you can only bear with one another in love if you recognize and acknowledge the reality that there is something to be born, that this person comes with the burden that you need to carry. And let's be honest, some people are hard. They come with heavy burdens to the relational table. And maybe those burdens are burdens of their own making or maybe it's the life experiences that they've been through. And some people, they just know exactly what buttons to push in us. But bearing with them in love and being patient with them means that despite the weight of these burdens that they bring to your relationship with them, that you are hoping, you are working, and you are praying for their good and their growth. Not so that your life would be more comfortable, but because their growth means the whole body of Christ gets a little stronger and a little more beautiful, and it brings a little more glory to Christ. And I wanna note that this hoping, working, and praying for the good and growth of a burdensome person doesn't always happen next to them. Listen, sometimes we're in relationships that are so deeply unhealthy Or we're personally in a place where we are so unhealthy, so mentally drained, so emotionally exhausted, so physically worn down that we need to create some physical distance from another person. Our passage is not asking us to become personally responsible for the growth of every Christian that we know and meet, regardless of how draining or toxic they may be in our lives. Sometimes the very best and most effective work we can do for a person is to pray for them from a distance or to bring in other believers to help you with that person. Our passage is not telling you to become personally responsible, but it is telling you you have to care You have to want and will their good, even if you're not the one to bring it. The last thing that Paul describes in our passage is that we should be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And let me just say this. For many of us, we are so quick to look at and to remember and to focus on the things that divide us from one another. Maybe this person is not as spiritually mature as we are. Maybe they're not as spiritual as we are. Maybe they wouldn't trade their brick for three of our wheat, and so we couldn't get the longest road, and we lost at Settlers. I don't know what your problem is with people. I just know you've probably got one. Or maybe they are the special type of person who prefers eating kava over pho and in which case, you should cut them out of your life. I'm not kidding. I'm kidding. Our passage calls us to go against our instincts and to go against all the training and messaging of society, not to be eager to seek out our differences, not to be eager to obsess and remember the things that divide us, but to be eager to seek out and maintain the things that unite us, rather than focusing and obsessing about the things that divide us. It means every time you have a relationship with a Christian and you find this thing about them that's different, that pushes you away from them, the Word of God is calling you to hold on to and fight to and eagerly look for and explore and search for the things that you have in common with this person, that unite you with this person That brings you closer to calling them brother or sister or father or mother. We're short on time, so I I can't expound on on everything here too much, but let me just say this. This passage is not calling for us to pursue some sort of false, like, unity. You know, like, quote-unquote, unity, right? With people at the cost of biblical truth. Our passage today is calling for unity within the body of Christian believers. It is not calling us to this same type of unity and eagerness to maintain it with the world. And we can talk a little bit more about that next week. Our passage today in Ephesians 4, it paints a picture of how a Christian is supposed to live and what that kind of living is supposed to do. And I would be remiss if I did not recognize and tell you that this picture that is being offered to you is not a complete picture, but it is a critical one. And what I mean is this, that there is much more that goes into living the worthy Christian life and the truths of God that need to be reflected and revealed in our living that is not being mentioned and not being talked about here in our passage, but is mentioned elsewhere in other passages and in other parts of Ephesians. What I'm trying to say is this, that there is more to the Christian life than what is being described in Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 6, but there cannot be less than what is being described here in Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 6. As we close, I want to acknowledge the difficulty and the complexity of everything that we're talking about here. I don't have nearly enough time or anywhere near enough wisdom to go into and explain to you the nuance of every situation that you might encounter in life. I recognize that for all of us, in our own personal lives, and our own personal journeys, There is a lot here that is incredibly difficult. And the things that God is calling us to do are incredibly hard. So let me close the same way we did last week and the same way we'll close next week and the same way, hopefully, I will close with you every week. We cannot do this on our own. This work is too high and it is too hard. We are too weak, we are too frail, we are too shallow. We do not have enough grit, we do not have enough drive, we do not have enough wisdom or spiritual discipline to change and transform ourselves and our relationships on our own and so we pray for ourselves, and for one another. So I want you to pray with me. Let's pray. Gracious God, we confess that these things that you have commanded of us, Here in your word, they are too heavy and they are too hard for us to accomplish. We confess that we cannot change our hearts. We cannot tame our tongue. How then are we supposed to transform and renew our minds? So we confess to you, Lord, that this calling, it feels too high for us. So teach us once again of how high and how deep and how wide is the love of God for his people. And let the knowledge of that love begin to sink deeper and deeper into our hearts. And as it sinks deeper, may it begin to change and transform everything about us May it fill within us the power to change, the power to walk in a manner more worthy of this calling that you have called us to. We surrender. We confess that we cannot do this. But we are so thankful that we pray today not to a God who is unwilling or unable to help, but to our risen Savior Jesus, our King, our Lord, our Messiah, who is able to do far more than we could ever ask for or imagine. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.